1: Greetings, dear listeners. Daniel here. Our next episode that you're about to listen to is a bit of a departure. I know that we said we were going to start lyrical ballads by Coleridge and Wordsworth, but it turns out that I needed a little bit of remedial education in poetics. So Claude, of course, being the helpful instructor that he is, takes us on a guided tour of poetry, of meter, of uh, poetic elements, just everything that you're looking for when you're reading poetry, how to read a poem. Uh, it was very enlightening for me. Hopefully it will be for you guys as well. Uh, also want to mention that the Cannonball is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. And this month we are featuring a terrific podcast, the French History Podcast. Uh, this is a magisterial survey beginning all the way back 1500 years ago with the establishment of the uh, Kingdom of the Franks in what had formerly been Roman Gaul, and taking it all the way up to the 20th century, uh, from Clovis to Clemenceau, one might say. Uh, interspersed in these uh, in the long narrative are special episodes of all sorts of topics drawn from French history and culture. It's really a wonderful show. I just finished listening to the series on the Merovingian dynasty, the Dark Ages, Frankish kings, and learned a lot. It's a subject that I thought I had a pretty good grip on, but uh, I learned a lot, and it was a lot of fun. So please check out the French history podcast on the Agora podcast network. And also check out all of our other sister shows on Agora podcast network available wherever you find fine podcasts like the one you're about to listen to now.
2: Welcome to the Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's l- list of the Western Canon. This is Claude Meyer and Guzer, uh with Daniel Doherty. As always, how are you doing, Daniel?
1: Hey, hey, uh, I'm good. Aside from the technical difficulties we were just uh, going over <laughs> before recording. But uh, of course, you're all hearing me coming through crystal clear, beautifully. Let it never be said that uh, we cannot uh, like so many... Um, uh uh inventive uh crewman upon the u s s enterprise invent a solution when all seems lost uh thank you and good night exactly. wait no we're not done okay
2: <laughs> all right so this is a very special episode uh <laughs> we figured since um we've launched into lyrical ballads and we're gonna be poetry heavy for you know a couple of episodes we figured. We'd give uh, the listeners a a sort of crash course in poetry and poetics. By no means is this a, a sort of end all be all for all things poetic. Uh, this is just sort of here's how some of the terminology works. Here's some of the ideas that go into it. Here's a little bit about form and what it means for the time period mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, so- Claude, Claude, is
1: being, being very polite by saying that this is for the listener. This is, this is in large part also for me because <laughs> I, I think we've, well, we've definitely talked on the show before, like poetry is a, a, a realm of human endeavor that I really don't have a deep familiarity with aside from. You know, like poems I've read for the show and, you know, I, occasional poems assigned in school and everything, but I, I'm pretty much out to sea. So I, I'm really looking forward to this. I am, uh, I, I, this is, this is, this is going to be good to get all kinds of new tools in my toolkit to, uh, to take into lyrical well, ballads.
2: Well, I think there, there are two things that kind of get in the way of of feeling comfortable reading a poem. One is the technical terminology, like the technical vocabulary and the sort of technical aspects of the, the poem itself. Uh, that can be kind of daunting if you don't know a whole lot. But if you just listen to it, you can kind of get it without necessarily having to know all this stuff. And the other thing is that poetry is, for whatever reason, it seems to be sort of, how do I put this? always aware of the history of form, always aware of the history of subject and metaphor and continually playing with form and metaphor with that history in mind, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So if um, a poet is sort of, a poet can make an allusion with form. A poet can make an allusion with rhyme and kind of riff on something that might be known to other poets, but might not be known outside of people familiar with, say, you know, the writings of Ben Jonson or Andrew mm-hmm. Marvell's, uh, you know, Carpe Diem poem or something like that. So it's the technical, I guess the, the technical know-how combined with the sort of general history of the form that you kind of need to know, right? And, and unless you've spent years and years studying that, um, you might not know it, and it can be, you know, kind of a a barrier for entry.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, the other thing that I think gets in the way is your high school English teacher <laughs> makes you feel as if you don't <laughs> understand what you're talking about. Um, you know, this is the thing that I always have to tell my students: there's no hidden meaning. You know, um the way I like to to think about it is uh in Samuel Beckett's novel, Watt, at the end, he has this list of uh things that oh how does he put it it it's it's a list of things that weren't put into the novel but intended to be put into the novel, yeah. and there's a note at the end that says only exhaustion and disgust prevented the author from incorporating the following material, so <laughs> it's kind of like an errata for his own novel and um the the last one it's it's like footnotes to all kinds of bizarre things um <clears throat> and the last uh the last note says no symbols were none intended.' Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's how I like to think about it. Um, a, a lot of times our, our training in poetry and poetics, like going back to high school or middle school, um, it, it's sort of trying to train you to believe that there's more to it than there actually is a lot of times. Yeah. And that introduction to the technicalities. Can quickly become X is symbolic for Y, uh, Z is symbolic for A, something like that, where you're stretching to make meaning of the thing when really, you know, just what is the message? What is it saying? Right. What is the kind of rhetorical argument going on? You know, aside from the, the technicalities, aside yeah. from the symbol, aside from the metaphor, aside from the symbol. So there's this desire that I think is sometimes encouraged to jump straight into these abstract meanings that are not necessarily specifically there on the page. So um, I guess that's my long ramble to get us into why people, you know, come to my class and say, oh, poetry sucks. Well, (laughs) (laughs) you've been trained to approach it in a particular way. You've been trained to think about it in a particular context. And I I think the context is preventing you from, from really engaging,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah.
2: So, it, does that sort of hew to your experience of learning this stuff?
1: It, it does. It absolutely does. I, I think in my, in my experience with poetry, the, uh, the pedagogical take was leaned very heavily on identify the themes and, um, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that kind of, <laughs> that kind of, uh, engagement. And, you know, it, it, it never really, it never really, uh, uh, flipped a switch for me, which is, I think, I mean, there has to be some kind of great disconnect, of course, because like, I mean, it's probably different now. What with the, what with their Roblox and, and what have you? I don't know if teens listen to music anymore, but you know, when you're a teenager <laughs> and you're listening to pop music, you know, the, the dominant form of poetry of our time, and especially if you're a fan of hip hop, I mean, come on, like that's, you oh, yeah. know, you're you're steeped in poetry, absolutely steeped in poetry, yeah, and appreciate it, and can draw meaning out of it independently. You know, I mean, come on, oh yeah. So yeah, clearly there's something you know, kind of kind of going askew uh, in in the whole operation. But I I am I am as always ready to just completely rinse my brain clean uh, and All right. <laughs> and be born again. <laughs> so. Uh- <clears throat>
2: I guess the place to start, and I, I apologize for the inelegance of my my initiatory ramble. I'm trying to sort of bring uh, several thoughts together at once, but I, I guess the 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 place that I lo- always like to start is the language itself. And English is a terrible
1: language. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's and we and we love it, folks. We love it for its terribleness. Yeah.
2: I, I think I've ranted about it on on here before, but it, it really is a couple of different linguistic systems crammed together to make a language, yeah. right? Um, a lot of its base is Germanic with all of these Latinate inflections. Yeah. And so basically that, that's sort of saying, I, I guess that's a reason why when you're taught grammar in, in high school or elementary school or wherever it is that you learn grammar, if people still learn grammar, uh there's always this list. It's like, okay, so here are the rules and here are the 25 exceptions to each individual rule. And the reason why is because you've got like competing linguistic systems crammed together, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a historical reason for that that I won't get into right now. Um, because lest we really,
1: we really be here all night, yeah. And and I and I have to wrestle but, uh, with my complicated admiration for John McWhorter as a linguist and writer. Anyway,
2: <laughs> but anyway, so to to get back to it, though, so it's it's a tough language for poetry, mostly because of the rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, Germanic languages uh, tend to have difficulty with rhyme, which isn't to say that Northern European languages. You know, have never rhymed before. Um, but it's just sort of difficult because the, the vocabulary itself, like the diction itself doesn't quite lend itself to rhyme as easily mm-hmm. as something like, say, Spanish or Italian or yeah, French. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Latinate languages that have uh, a sort of clear masculine, clear feminine with, um, sounds that designate those things, right? Mm-hmm. The the gender of the noun. So um, it, it's just this kind of weird hodgepodge language. But what it does have is a syllabic base. Yes, right. Uh, and that's going to be the root of of poetry. You have to count the syllables, and you have to figure out where the syllables are, where the syllables are placed, and you know when and where they operate. So. Um, <clears throat> I guess uh this is sort of an aside uh while we're talking about rhyme. We brought this up in Milton, but you know that um the old Greek and Latin epics didn't rhyme, right? Yes, yes.
1: But yeah, and it was a purely me- uh purely rhythmic uh meter and and poetic kind of conception.
2: Yeah, there you go. So, uh that's a kind of parallel system as far as I can understand it where you're sort of placing this emphasis on on syllables and syllabic construction all right so what you do in English <coughs> uh, that's really really important is count the syllables and there's this thing you can do which is scan a poem and when you're scanning a poem you're breaking uh, a line down uh, into its syllabic components. You're looking for the unstressed syllables and you're looking for the stressed syllables. And anywhere that you find an unstressed syllable, you put this little U over it. And any place that you find a stressed syllable, you put this accent mark over it. Uh, I wish I had a visual component here. <laughs>
1: but um
2: That's really sort of how it goes. And so the, the, the first thing you do when you're looking at a poem is, well, you read it and you think about the meaning of it. What is the message of this poem? Literally, what is the poem saying? And then you can dig in and start messing around with the metrics. All right. So the meter is the sort of repeated measurable pattern. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the, the basic, I guess unit of measurement for a line is called a foot. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And there, there's a whole thousand year history of writers in English messing with the, you know, punning on the idea of the foot. Uh, Hmm. so don't think you're being original there with whatever, (laughs) uh, silly dad joke is swirling Uh around in your head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's been made by silly dads uh, going back you know, several hundred years. But the foot is the basic unit of measurement of a palm. And what you do to come up with the the, the type of palm is you count the feet and then you describe the feet. Mm-hmm. So you count the number of feet and then you tell what kind of feet they are. All right, And there are a couple of different kinds of feet. There are a couple of different kinds of units of measurement of the palm. And the units of measurement of the poem uh, sort of depend on whether the syllables within the foot are stressed or unstressed, and how they're stressed and unstressed. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, this is all very abstract, but let me give you an example. the The one that most people I think would be familiar with is the I am, uh, because everybody's read some Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and Shakespeare
1: wrote in. What do you write in Daniel? Uh, iambic pentameter, also known there as blank – also known as blank verse, right? There you go. All right, good. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can hear the, the sort of tentative sound in your voice. No, but that's like, – yeah, the, the, the beads
1: um, of sweat were forming <laughs> on my forehead.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so and I am – all right, basically what that means, uh, pentameter, what does penta mean?
1: So that's uh, five. It'd be units of five, I suppose, yeah. in the uh, in the Prefix conception. For five. Yeah.
2: So how many feet are in a pentameter line? Uh, why would? Pre- oh, okay. Well, uh, five feet then. <laughs> five feet in a pentameter line. Yeah. So if it's iambic pentameter, what kind of foot is it? Uh, it would be an iamb. There you go. Ah, now yeah. It's an iamb. It's. It's two syllables
1: unstressed stressed. Now before we go much further, I and I'm sure our audience is a little curious, uh are there any uh what what are some other sort of uh foots or feet that we might encounter in in English poetry? I mean we all know the the term iambic pentameter and you know and and the, by extension iams, but what other kind of feet might we encounter?
2: Oh okay. So I, I've got a whole list of them. <laughs> Oh, great. Right. So <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to start with the I am because it really is sort of the most common. And for okay, yeah, whatever yeah. reason, English verse tends to, like, English tends to sort of lapse into I ams. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes, uh, poets will try not to write in I ams and inadvertently just keep going into I am. Um, it, it's just this weird kind of rhythm that you can get into. But, um, you have other kinds of feet that sort of crop in there. Um, you've got the trochee, which is sort of like the the reverse of the I am. It's uh, a foot where you have a stressed syllable and then an unstressed syllable. Mm-hmm. And do you want to hear um, a poem that's really oddly jagged and jittery because it's written in trochees? <coughs> uh, this is one that's probably – Well-known to most people. Daniel, I think you'll know that. You ready? Yeah. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume (laughs) of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. To some visitor I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Uh, That's Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. What makes it so weird? Like, what makes it so, like – I don't know. Choppy, I guess is the best way that I, that I can think to put it at this late an yeah, hour in the yeah. evening is because the, the, the stress is on the first syllable once upon a midnight dreary, right? Yeah. You've got this intensity straight from the beginning and then it just sort of chugs along like that.
1: I was going to say it's- it ends up with an effect <laughs> that's, um, the, the, like I would call it sing songy, but wrong. <laughs> You
2: know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well Poe was doing that on purpose. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we sort of had our our weird one-off Poe episode. But Poe for all of his his faults as a poet, and he had many, most of them <laughs> were in terms of his subject matter. Um, but for all of his faults as a poet, he really did pay close attention to the meter. And and that's the thing that you can say about him is that he He was, he was very cunning in how he would use the meter. And he would often purposefully go for an effect and he could kind of sort of pull it off. The problem is a lot of the subject matter is either the same thing over and over again, or it gets really trite really quickly, or it just sort of hits you over the head and you're like, oh, come on, man. But um, anyway, that's the trochee is another foot that you can use. I think as you can hear, it's, it's, it's just kind of jagged. It's, it's off, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you can, the, the thing about, <clears throat> the thing about a, a verse form or the thing about a meter is that you can substitute feet. So even if something is primarily iambic pentameter, you can throw in a trochee there just to sort of pop it up a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> there's some other feet. That you can play with too. You can throw in an anapest, which is three syllables, uh, two unstressed syllables and one stressed syllable. You can throw in a spondy, which is 2 uh, a succession of – sorry, it's two successive syllables. Um, wait a minute. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> Um, it's two successive syllables, um, that are both stressed. I'm sorry. I'm fumbling over myself here. <laughs> so it's sort of like two stressed <laughs> syllables. Yeah. And then you have a pyrrhic, which is two successive unstressed syllables. So the, the spondy is two stressed syllables and the pyrrhic is two unstressed syllables. So Hmm. you see, you can throw in a couple things here and there to vary it up and to make it not sound robotic or sing-songy or you know Mother Goosey or what have you. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, if you know what you're doing, you can kind of like play around with the meter. So even though you have a particular meter, you have a particular form that you're working in. If you vary it, you're not wrecking the form. You're not wrecking the meter. You're just varying it to make it interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So are you with me so far?
1: I'm um, I'm right there with you. This is great.
2: Okay. So those are the kind of feet that you can have or, or a couple of different kinds. And like I said, this is like just scratching the surface here of what you can do with this. All right. So the next step is to count the feet. And we already did that with iambic pentameter. If the IM is the kind of foot, pentameter is the number of feet in the line. Mm -hmm. So you have five feet in the line, iambic pentameter. If you have a three-foot line, it's trimeter. If you have a four-foot line, it's tetrameter, five-foot pentameter, six-foot hexameter, Mm -hmm. and so on. Okay. So – that's how you determine the meter. So far, so good. Now, <clears throat> the stanza is sort of like the basic unit of the poem. It's sort of like the paragraph of the poem. And this kind of goes back and forth. When you get to the 20th century, sometimes you have a verse paragraph uh, or uh, a sort of – that that's a weird kind of chunk of text which – doesn't necessarily have a repeatable form within it. Yeah. Um, but the stanza that, that gets really, really weird and can kind of dovetail with the stanza anyway. And I'm sort of getting lost in the woods. So if anybody ever asks you, just say stanza. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. My, my cop out there, but the, the stanza is sort of like the basic unit and, um, most poetry until the 20th century was primarily built around the stanza or i guess this is the general cliche mm-hmm. and what the modernists really did because they were approaching it as a visual text more than a, a a sort of heard text is changed it so that the line becomes the sort of unit of the poem yeah <clears throat> that's that's sort of back and forth depending on what you want to do with the poem and what kind of poem that you're trying to write. You know? Plenty of people are still writing sonnets. Um, plenty of people are still writing odes and ballads, mm-hmm. right? In various ways, shapes, and forms. Uh so you can pay attention to one, you can pay attention to the other, you can um throw it together. It depends if you're writing free verse or formal verse or how you're approaching it. But I'm just sort of giving you the 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 catch-alls here. All right. So, rhyme <clears throat> here's the the sort of technical stuff that no one pays attention to with rhyme. Hmm. Uh, you can have masculine rhyme where the stress is on the rhyming word, right like on the the end of the word that rhymes so that the end of the line is stressed to emphasize the rhyme. Mm-hmm. Then you have feminine rhyme where the rhyme is unstressed at the end of the word hmm. yeah. and. If if you're reading a lot of eighteenth century poetry, something like uh Alexander Pope, Pope would be really sort of fascinated with these things and would play around with masculine and feminine rhyme for all kinds of technical reasons. Uh sometimes just to show off. Um Dryden would do some of the same. I think Johnson was sort of in that vein, but it was it was something that I think if you're being extraordinarily technical with Then you're going to want to pay, you know, more attention to. But if you're just reading it for fun, sort of like we're doing, uh, that doesn't really come into it at all. And I just threw it in there because it was some interesting vocabulary. Um, but the thing about rhyme is, um, you, you look at the rhyme, you see what rhymes and you sort of line it up by letter. So if the first line, uh, rhymes with the third line and the second line rhymes with the fourth line, mm-hmm. then you would say A, B, A, B, rhyme. Yeah. Okay. So I hope everybody remembers that from from middle school or high school or whenever you were taught those. Yeah, yeah. But you use letters to kind of delineate the rhyme. So you can say A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, so on and so forth. I almost got myself into a sonnet form there uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway <clears> – <throat> So rhyme um, – there's a great sort of innovation. Um, yeah, I guess it's not an innovation that was developed in the 20th century but sort of utilized in the 20th century, which is near rhyme or slant rhyme.
1: Hmm, yeah, and yeah.
2: near rhyme, slant rhyme, they, they both basically mean the same thing. You can have a consonant that's the same or a vowel sound that's the same, something that suggests rhyme that doesn't have to be sort of straight up fire desire or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Which is again, which is again, desire for a thousand years.
1: (laughs) Which is again something uh, who uh, anyone who has listened to pop music would be very familiar with. Uh, I think that that happens a lot.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so like you can play around with it. And the great thing about rhyme is that you can suggest connection between words and you can draw out connections between words. And if you're using near rhyme or slant rhyme, you can do something of the same to sort of cast them in a sort of similar light, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a kind of cool way to be thinking about how words sound, why words sound, so on and so forth. And there's one more rhyme that I want to talk about, which is um internal rhyme, mm. where the the rhyme <clears throat> will sort of take place in the middle of the line instead of at the end. So it's it's rhyme that doesn't necessarily occur at the end of the line. And if you want to see a great version of this, Henri Cole, uh, you know, I'll see if I can link it in the show notes. I might not be able to, but Henri Cole did a a poem called "The Roman Bath at Nimes," mm-hmm. where he's deliberately playing with um, in-stopped lines and enjambment and slant rhyme and internal rhyme. Mm-hmm. To uh, sort of make this rhetorical case about, um, I guess why we should embrace certain kinds of pleasures of the body in the face of of mortality.
0: Hmm, yeah, it's
2: so it's really fun, and um, I'll pull that up later. All right, so are you following me so far?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Okay. Um. Here we go. When we
2: talk about form, you're talking about a repeated or repeatable um, rhythm and rhyme, uh, a, a sort of repeatable meter and rhyme. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a particular kind of line put together in particular kinds of ways uh, with a particular kind of rhyme going with it. All right. Yeah. So the the form that I thought we might could start with because it's gonna be so it's gonna be something that Wordsworth is gonna come back to a lot throughout the lyrical ballads, is is the ballad. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. It's it's in the damn title. <laughs> Fittingly enough.
2: <laughs> All right. So a ballad uh it's a quatrain, which means it's a four-line stanza. And excuse me, the rhyme is either A B C B or A B A B. And there are a couple of versions of the ballad. You can have iambic tetrameter followed by a trimeter, followed by tetrameter, followed by trimeter, which would basically go something like da 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 um there's a variation on it where you can do tetrameter to trimeter to tramiter trimeter or trimeter where it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And sort of like falls off. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So it's associated in English with a kind of folk tradition. That's why Wordsworth was coming was was coming to it. That's that's why he wanted to use it. That's why they wanted to use this idea of the ballad in the title, was to connect it to an English folk tradition in opposition to <clears throat> what they saw as this sort of overpolished professional verse. Even though Wordsworth's whole plan was to set himself up as a professional poet. But, um, it's, it's trying to shift the focus into a different kind of writing, right? Yeah. Um, and, and we were also sort of talking about how that was read politically in the time because they were utilizing certain kinds of form. They were setting themselves up to be read as certain kinds of political poets, right? Yeah. Um, so form carries a kind of politic with it. Now, the The ballad typically has some kind of narrative push to it hmm. um if you want to read an old Scots ballad, you can check out the ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, which is about this valiant knight who dies at sea hmm. the end yeah. <laughs> but, <you> know, it's- <laughs> Sorry. No, but it's um it it has this way of telling a story, a very brief story in a kind of compact sort of way and it speeds along and you move right through it. So it's it's a kind of versatile verse form, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and, and you can kind of tell a simple tale with it. And Wordsworth is going to do that. But it's it's sort of easy and quick And you're done. Mm -hmm. And you'll kind of be amazed. Words will throw some of these things in there, Um, particularly the Lucy poems, which I guess we'll talk about next time, where, you know, what's the story? There was a girl no one knew and she died and I miss her. The end. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you can just kind of tell it. So um, I wanted to start with that because uh, that's going to be one of the things that connects our romantics To that kind of English tradition. Now, one more time, when we're talking about tradition and we're talking about folk traditions, we have to keep in mind, you know, we have to keep a certain kind of skepticism, right? That part of what these guys are trying to do is co-opt some of that, reinvent it. We're not talking about something that's like a, a tradition that's static because no tradition is ever static. So at times, perhaps some of the romantics want to claim that this tradition is static and that they're recovering it in some ways. So you know there are all kinds of caveats going along with that, but that's sort of why I wanted
1: to start with the ballad.
2: All right. Yeah. So have you ever read a sonnet, Daniel? Uh,
1: I have. Um, That would have been part of my uh, Shakespeare curriculum. And I I do recall (laughs) that I, I have definitely read a couple of Shakespeare sonnets. I know oh uh John Donne he wrote in sonnets yeah Oh yeah and I, I know um, I, I okay late- so I know I've read some Donne as well um <laughs>
2: Yeah late in his life uh well he he was relatively young when he died but late in his life um after he'd become a Church of England clergyman mm-hmm. John Donne um turned to writing holy sonnets uh, okay. Let's talk about Dunn for five seconds, just because I'm fascinated by him. <laughs> All right. Uh, what, what, what the hell? Now, Dunn, if, if anybody is interested in poetry, poetics, and hasn't sort of encountered Dunn, please go do so now. Um, he, he's a lot of fun. He was born to a Catholic family in England in the 17th. Is it? well he was writing in the 17th century i get my dates always confused but he <laughs> um you know if you were from a catholic family you couldn't you could attend university but you couldn't take a degree you couldn't live within the city limits you couldn't take certain kinds of official positions um he was a smart kid and he was kind of the the reputation is that he was sort of wild and crazy in his late teens early 20s um then he got married in secret. He sort of eloped with his employer's daughter and uh, that landed him in jail for a night, I believe. Uh, at least that's a legend. And he had a sort of rough scramble to find employment um, he worked as a, a sort of official secretary or cleric for a bit. He was an ambassador's secretary, I believe. And so he was always going to the continent. Um, <clears throat> but he, he was trained more or less as a lawyer. And because he was raised Catholic, he had to always be constantly aware of like, what was blasphemous and what was not? What was yeah, heretical yeah. and what was not? And at a certain point, um. This is something that was told to me by a professor that I've never verified with an actual look at the biography. But he apparently was um, sort of freelance scanning ministers' sermons to make sure that they weren't um, inadvertently committing heresies. <laughs> uh, it, it's, I guess it's sort of like due diligence for, for clergymen, which sounds kind of silly, but um, – Remember Church of England positions. That's a, that's a political position, and if you say something that inadvertently goes too far Catholic or too far like Protestant, then mm-hmm. off with your head.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because anyway. you're you're the you're the Anglican Church trying. You know, you're 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 hitting that sweet spot of a, a high church <laughs> and 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 you know Episcopal structure with bishops and whatnot. So that you know you're you're opposed to the Catholics but also these these rotten nonconformers who are getting really too Protestant with it with uh, yeah. with their with their presbyters and whatnot
2: so y- you gotta you gotta find a middle road anyway um in his youth he wrote a lot of I guess poems for occasion songs poems to be passed around um like just I guess they would have been considered diversions. I mean, just kind of like the fun part of writing a poem. And he, he will take his, he will take his analogies to the furthest possible place. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, where yeah. any other where any other um poet would have sort of thro- tossed off a metaphor he'll extend the metaphor across the poem to take it as far as he can possibly go it's really sort of astounding to see but late in his life um you know his his wife died um he was sort of living i believe north of london uh he was still sort of cobbling together in existence and he was well known as someone who was
0: many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care
2: Apt at clergy stuff, I guess right, that's right. the way to put it. And so he was, um, he was sort of persuaded to join the clergy and became an extraordinarily um, popular preacher. And later, he wrote holy sonnets, which are sonnets um, to God, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, the. The sonnet, that's a sort of roundabout way to get us to the sonnet. Um, The sonnet (laughs) is this form, um, it's 14 lines of iambic pentameter. And it was really sort of developed by Petrarch, the Tuscan language poet, Mm -hmm. who, you know, Tuscan language, which, as we said in Dante, becomes Italian. Um, he sort of took parts of the classical mode and merged it with parts of the kind of street music he was hearing around to try to create this elevated form. Mm-hmm. But the Petrarchan sonnet, <clears throat> it has an octave and a sestet. So it has eight lines and then six lines. And uh between those – there's a, a volta or a turn. That's mm-hmm. sort of typically what happens in a sonnet. You get through a certain part of the poem, and then there will be a turn, like uh, conceptually within the poem, as if an argument is being made. Mm-hmm. A- and that's the thing about the sonnet. In Petrarch, I mean, he uses it as a love poem, essentially. And it has this kind of – um it has this kind of reputation for love poetry, yeah. But at its heart, it's really openly rhetorical, yeah. It's it's weird. It's it's a very argument heavy poem. But the the Petrarchan sonnet starts with this octave, which goes A B B A A B B A, and then you've got a sestet which can go C D C, sorry C D C D C D, or C D E C D E. So yeah. you can vary the sesta. But you see why, why English-language poets would um, be fascinated by this rhetorical form and yet maybe hesitant to adopt a form that really only has two rhymes.
1: Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> um, that's tough. Yeah, yeah.
2: So there's – uh, a variation in English, which is called Shakespearean, but which was really sort of developed by Wyatt and Surrey, who are precursors to Shakespeare. But, yeah. um, Shakespeare, I guess, sort of popularized this or used this the most. Um, it's 14 lines, three quatrains. So basically you've got three sections of four lines, and then you throw a couplet on the end. So it's A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Um, uh, <laughs> Memorize it and spat it off. But wait, what that really sort of does is extends the argument, but you get this nice little couplet to bring it to a solid conclusion. And you can kind of show off with that last couplet, which is what Shakespeare does a lot of times. Hmm. Um So it, it begins as this love poem, but it's got this real sort of rhetorical push in it. And, and it's interesting – all right. By the time Shakespeare gets his hands on the sonnet, it's already kind of a clichéd form. Yeah. And if if you actually read his sonnets, um most of the time they're anti-sonnets. He's taking the tropes that he's inherited just saying, yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah, that's bullshit. Watch what I can do.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, a lot of times he's hyper aware of all of that stuff and he's kind of turning it on its head in some fun and playful ways. Uh, What's interesting when you get to the 19th century is that Wordsworth, Shelley, and a couple of others that I can think of will use the sonnet, but not necessarily in its – in its sort of love poem form. Keats does a couple in that mode, Mm -hmm. Um, but – Wordsworth is going to write some some sonnets that are a little bit more social critique or political. And I guess the most famous sonnet out of the night or out of the romantic uh, era would be Shelley's Ozymandias, oh, which yeah. is yeah. this critique of absolute tyranny and absolute power and monarchical tyranny. So it it strikes me that you know at least for the ones that i can think of off the top of my head um the romantics were interested in sort of reestablishing this kind of rhetorical push within the sonnet which is kind of ironic because the romantics as we'll probably talk about next time are sort of notorious at least Amongst twentieth century critics for burying their um rhetorical aims mm-hmm. or or so twentieth century critics claim. I think twentieth century critics are maybe blind to the genres that they were playing in, but we can we can talk about that later <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so that's that's the sonnet. So we've got the ballad, we've got the sonnet. And then um the most frustrating one of all, the ode. Hmm. Yeah. Um ask me what the 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 sort of generic form of the ode is.
1: Um I would have no clue because I only know the word ode from the standpoint of like the kind of subject matter, uh or rather the approach to the subject matter being, you know, well, an ode, like in, in celebration of or or in some manner. <laughs> I have no clue yeah, what the actual form of the poem might be.
2: Me fucking either. Okay.
1: Um, <laughs> All it's, right. <laughs> it's, it's something that's,
2: that's bothered me. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm being a little, little silly here. No, you're right. It's, it's a really weird form because it, it, it really sort of does take its, its cues from the subject matter. As you said, public celebration, right? -hmm. Uh, It goes, it goes back to the Greek. You've got the Pindaric Ode. Uh, Pindar was a dude who was basically paid uh, by wealthy families to write, you know, beautiful songs about um, their heroic sons who came in first in the Olympics. And if they didn't come in first, then it was make our idiot bastard son who came in fifth look good. Um, (laughs) You know, things like that but it it takes it, it it was meant to be sung and it was a public performance for celebration and typically the Pintark odes are celebrations of of specific athletes in in the Olympic games um you have the horatian ode after Horace um where it, it's it's a little bit more philosophical in mode mm-hmm And then there's the Sapphic Ode, which is this sort of elaborate scheme based on, I believe, what we think Sappho was writing that um, – I'm not going to get into the details, but I I believe it was brought back into the consciousness or attempted to be brought back into the consciousness by certain – English decadence in the late 19th century. Huh, um, yeah. I think Swinburne tried to play around with sapphic odes and maybe, maybe Rossetti. I'm not quite sure. I believe Swinburne did, but anyway, um, <clears throat> it's sort of in imitation of an idea of Greece. All right. So, <coughs> excuse me. The ode. Is, is gonna be important for the romantics and we're gonna see a lot of odes. Well, we're gonna see several odes in the lyrical ballads and Keats' whole career is, is based around his odes. Hmm. And the thing about the ode that I think is appealing to the early 19th century is the fact that it doesn't have a really set form. A lot of times it's really just up to the poet to determine the form. So you get to make the stanza, you get to make the rhyme scheme, you get to make the meter, like figure it out, (laughs) put it together. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Um, but it does have certain kinds of, I guess, structural supports. Um, if you want to use it in a particular way, you can use it like strophe, anti-strophe and epode drawing your cues from the the sort of classical Greek tragedy, mm-hmm. right? The The chorus would come on and do a little bit of song and dance, and they'd move across the stage in one direction for the the strophe. They'd move across the stage in another direction for the anti-strophe, and then come out to the center and sort of twirl around for the epode. <laughs> okay, not exactly twirl around, but you get the idea. <laughs> uh, yeah. But this means that that the Ode can kind of open itself up to a sort of dialectical reading where mm-hmm. a stanza can rethink a previous position or a previous stanza. Um, you'll see that a lot in – well, you'll see that in Wordsworth's Intimations of Immortality Ode. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole engine of um the Ode to the Nightingale where the speaker is trying to think and rethink – their own experience of hearing the bird's song, like, how do I interpret this? How do I understand this? And it's sort of like thinking again and again, sort of countering that thought, then countering that thought, then countering that thought. So, um, <clears throat> it's a, it's a form that emphasizes individuality. Um, the yeah. individuality of the artist. Yeah. And. That's one of the reason that the reasons that the the Romantics are sort of drawn to it. If the artist is supposed to be singular, and be possessed of this kind of singular talent or singular ability, then the ode expresses that. Right. The yeah. form allows you to express that. Um. And <coughs> excuse me. Uh. Yeah, so I think that's all I want to say about the Ode. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you have a couple of other things thrown in there, uh, which we're going to talk about next time. A, a lot of what I'm doing here is setting up some of the formal stuff that we'll talk about next time. Yeah. But w- one of the things is blank verse, and we did this already. <laughs> Where did we do this already?
1: <laughs> um, uh yeah, you'll have you'll have to remind me. Sadly, I I am I am not the uh my perspicacity has failed me on this one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it starts with a Milton. Oh, okay. Um,
1: okay,
0: gotcha.
2: Yeah. Okay. So blank versus unrhymed dynamic pentameter, and it was the verse form that was really sort of developed for the English stage in the sixteenth, seventeenth century. And it 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 really took off among playwrights because it' It gives you a kind of formal polish without the burden of having to rhyme every damn thing. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can really, you can focus on other things like character, you know, and really sort of developing these sort of three dimensional characters that leap off the stage. Um, so it, it blank verse is, it, it was initially the verse of the stage, which was really kind of shabby. Um, on the one hand, it can sound, You know, rhetorically polished. On the other hand, the culture at the time would have considered it, uh, you know, just kind of throwaway junk, right? Because, uh, the theater was kind of, it was just low entertainment, no matter how high the entertainment was. Right, right. Um, so it, it was the verse of Shakespeare. And then something happens in the 17th century. It becomes the verse of Milton, right? Remember, we were sort of talking about this, how Milton took, Shakespeare's blank verse and then turned it into something else, turned it into the sound of epic, right? Yeah. So when poets in the late 18th, early 19th century are <clears throat> utilizing blank verse, it tends to be with this kind of double consciousness. It had started as this, I guess, dramatic, um, This form used for for dramatic speech, Hmm. and then it becomes the sound of epic. So when we get to something like Tintern Abbey, Wordsworth Mm -hmm. is going to be using blank verse with that history in mind and directly alluding to Milton uh, with – you know, the contents of the poem itself, but the form is also an allusion to Milton. So <laughs> that's something to sort of keep in mind there. All right. It, it's got this lurking Shakespearean context back there, this lurking theatrical context back there, but, um, it's also got this intervention by Milton in the 17th century. Um, a couple of final terms just to keep in mind. Um, apostrophe apostrophe Mm -hmm. is when you're speaking to a person or object who's not there and to my mind apostrophe is going to be one of those things that you want to keep an eye out for in lyrical ballads because so much of the time when you think that you know the speaker is just going on and on and on about their thoughts and feelings you begin to realize that um Within the scope of the poem, they're speaking to another person. Mm -hmm. So there's a drama of dialogue. (laughs) It's just you have to pay attention to know that that is going on. So there's an apostrophe there where um, someone is being spoken to. And my own – sort of take on this, and I'll I'll show you how it happens in Wordsworth yeah. or how it happens in Tintern Abbey, is that apostrophe is sort of at the heart of what he's trying to do with his poetic project. Like he's trying to connect beyond the page in this virtual reality kind of way. So pay attention to when the poem is speaking to you or speaking to another person, but addressing the second person. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, You have an in-stopped line where the grammar uh, of the sentence stops at the end of the line. And then you have an enjammed line where the grammar extends to the next line. Uh, We were talking about this when we were talking about Milton because for Milton, enjambment was indicative of the kind of seemingly chaotic and yet structured nature of nature – as God willed it, <laughs> um, where you don't have an artificial stopping point, but extend the sense into the next line, right? Yeah. So it becomes this this rough hole. Wordsworth is going to do some of the same, <clears throat> most likely inspired by Milton. Um, you have a caesura, which is a grammatical pause in the line. So say in the middle of the line, you've got a period. Yeah, that would be a caesura or a stop in – the line um you have a metaphor, which is do you know what that is daniel
1: uh i do i do the 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 metaphor is uh what comes after the four in the works of Aristotle <laughs> <laughs> Huh? <laughs> you like that one <laughs> I, I i do thank you thank you um, um yeah well i think we uh, uh yes uh, metaphor as uh, as you' know, use a a literary device of um uh oh gosh well that I was going to say comparison but that also includes simile No it's a comparison it's
2: yeah. a comparison that does not use like or as and a right. simile is a comparison
1: that does use That like does or use as. like or as yeah is now is simile considered like a species of the genus metaphor or are they considered separate literary devices
2: No they're they're two different things okay. um and you can think about it <clears throat> I think poets Try to be conscientious about this because there, there, there are two things that you can do that each have their own moral weight, yeah, um, or their own ethical weight. Uh, when you say, <clears throat> when you use a metaphor, what you're doing is eliminating the boundaries between terms.
1: Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So one
2: thing becomes another. Right. It's when an act. It's an act of
1: equation. Yeah, rather than yes. comparison. I got gotcha. you.
2: Yeah, and and when you're using a simile, um, you're drawing things into comparison, but still keeping the boundaries there in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and um, when I say that there's an ethical or a moral weight to that, what I have in mind is is something like Sylvia Plath's Daddy. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but um, that's one where um she class father died when i think she was eight Mm -hmm. he thought he had cancer and it turns out he was diabetic so you know just go to the doctor yeah but um (laughs) but like that was sort of like one of the original traumas in her life and um She always sort of traced a lot of her issues back to that with psychoanalysis and things like that. And so she has this poem that is really sort of an exorcism of that trauma. And it's also a sort of self-analytical move to see how she tried to fill that void in her life with – her ex-husband who had just left her. And so yeah. it's sort of like revisiting that trauma or reenacting it. And, um, it, it's a really rough poem, uh, because it's sort of like she's throwing everything but the kitchen sink and then she hurls the kitchen sink at her father. Uh, but, um, it's, it's just a rough poem to read and it's, it's really hateful, spiteful and so angry and intense. Um, It's really kind of amazing in its own right, but she breaks decorum. Her father was, I believe, of German descent. And this was written in 62 or 63 where, you know, the full scope of the horrors of World War II were really sort of coming out. The full scope Mm -hmm. of the concentration camps was coming out. And in the poem, she literally says, you are a Nazi. I am a Jew. Um, Mm -hmm she's using metaphor there yeah and it's sort of like how dare you you know yeah, yeah. um it, it it's a conflation of terms that that carries i mean she 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 does more than break decorum i mean she's being i think purposefully offensive hmm. you know yeah yeah and it it makes you feel the weight of when someone actually uses metaphor in that way right yeah in not to go extraordinarily grim tonight but um (laughs) there's another poem by uh the contemporary poet jory graham called from the new world Mm -hmm. which is uh about the poet trying to write a poem about um uh uh what is it It was an actual case. I think they made a a documentary about it recently, of this guy in Detroit who was, I guess he was in his 80s. (coughs) Excuse me, but he was accused of being a a former concentration camp guard who got away, and then went on trial in in Israel. And one of the the sort of atrocities associated. With him was and this is absolutely horrible content warning for this mm-hmm. um a thirteen year old girl who had walked out of one of the gas chambers asking for her mother and then being ordered to be taken back in and raped on the way
1: oh.
2: um, yeah Graham writes this poem about. You know, okay, if we're going to be serious, then art needs to confront these things and have something to say about these things. And she keeps writing, but what is this like? Right? Like, what is the simile? What is the comparison that you can make to that? Right? How can trope account for that kind of atrocity? And she ends the poem by breaking off like what? Like what? Um, there is no comparison to that. Like that mm-hmm. that singular atrocity has to stand as it is. That person's trauma, that person's pain has to you have to honor it in that way. You can't compare it to something else, and you certainly can't turn it into a metaphor for something.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So sorry, that's my long, boring <laughs> ramble for you know why <laughs> the difference between simile and metaphor matters.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right?
2: When you break down the boundaries between two things and say that one thing is the thing, then you're making one kind of move of equation. Uh, if you're going to say that one thing is like the thing, then you're going to – keep things apart to some degree, but there may be some gain in having that separation. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so then we get to free verse, and free verse is not going to be something that our English romantics are really going to embrace. When we get to Walt Whitman in America, there you go. But free verse <laughs> – um, I just felt the need to bring it up because we're talking about metrics. Free verse doesn't have a fixed meter. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a meter. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can't scan a line by Walt Whitman. It just means it doesn't have a fixed meter or a regular meter. Yeah. Right? So you can do whatever you want with the line. And then we come to this word that is in the title of the book that we're looking at. That causes me no small amount of consternation. Lyric. Hmm. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. All right. Um Lyric is fuck
1: it. I don't know what it is. And <laughs>
2: at, at least I'm in good company.
1: Uh I um, you know, lyric means uh pretty and enjoyable. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, to to to, to, to describe okay. well, I mean, I'm just thinking like well, you know, I'm thinking of the times that I you know, in a usage of the term like lyrical, right? I'll use that yeah. when describing prose that is particularly pleasing or affecting in a kind of I don't even necessarily want to say lighthearted way, but somewhere in that wheelhouse of it, be like you know, I mean, I, I can read some prose that is dealing with some very profound and sad things and find it very moving but that's not something i'd be moved yeah. to call lyrical exactly so there is some kind of inflection uh-huh. of sunniness there and that and, I, and honestly like thinking about it i'm sure that's going to be one of those things like how uh the word romance comes to mean sort of has this erotic meaning to us uh or at the very least yeah like a like a you know some sort of uh element of of uh of erotic to it when really all the word means is just, you know, vulgar Latin. <laughs> so, and and yeah. there's a whole chain of um, associations that goes back to that. But
2: <clears throat> yeah, the, that kind of gets at it because it, it's a word that I guess outside of the realm of academia suggests musicality. Yeah. You know, at its simplest yeah. term, or at its simplest, it suggests musicality. Um, but when we use it to talk about a poem, After the 19th century, it gets funky. All right. Hmm. So the way it's been used critically in the 20th century is typically to signify a short um, quote-unquote emotional observation.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Originally, it just meant that it was associated with accompaniment, like it, it had musical accompaniment. Um, the, the guy who sort of made an intervention here was John Stuart Mill, who had these, he, he did a couple of essays where he was talking about aesthetics and he was talking about art. And he was writing in the wake of the Romantics. And he says that, um, the lyric is a private utterance overheard. And, and that really hmm. sort of articulated a particular view of what the romantic poets were doing I'm okay here's why what he says is embraced and here's why it's problematic on the surface it does really sort of seem to account for this way that a lot of the romantics were trying to bridge the gap between public and private Yeah, yeah yeah Um, there's a presumed intimacy when you're reading the book, right? Like every, every first day of my intro to lit classes, you know, I I ask my students to read a poem and tell me what it's about. And 90% of them say, well, it's the poet's thoughts and feelings. (laughs) Tells me fucking nothing. Look <laughs> right <laughs> um, you can you can spit on the sidewalk and it'll express your thoughts and feelings, yeah, um you know so but but that's the kind of way that we've been taught to believe these are the intimate, private thoughts and feelings of the poet. well, that misses the fact that you have a speaker in the poem, the poem may be drawn from actual experience, but you have a speaker in the poem, you have this sort of like technique that goes along with it mm-hmm. um, and, and it misses the kind of rhetorical moves that i think the the romantics were aware they were making um it misses the different genres that they were writing in that I think we were sort of talking about last time. You know, Wordsworth wasn't the first person to write poems about, you know, the local madwoman or the, the peddlers around town or the beggars or, or what have you. He, he wasn't the first person to do that. And certain kinds of genres about rustic life were already developed or developing. Right? Yeah. So. This reading of everything as private utterance overheard misses the genres that they were sort of writing in. It misses the rhetorical moves that they're making. I mean, it completely misses what he's doing in Tintern Abbey. Um, But it becomes the kind of de facto way of thinking about how a poem functions in the 20th century – right? Yeah, or in the 21st yeah. century even. Like when you go, <clears throat> remember back when there were bookstores and you could go to a bookstore <laughs> and sort of browse and you pick up a book of contemporary verse and automatically assume this is the true experiences of the author, you know, bled down on the page. And this is all of the kind of complicated interaction between um Poem and reader that they have devised. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a problematic way of approaching things, but now I'm going to make it even more problematic because I'm going to, you know, call in a problematic critic. Um, Paul DeMond who is a a deconstructive critic at Yale and who was later revealed posthumously to have written for several Nazi rags. Uh, back in his youth, uh, mm, yeah. in Belgium, and who also sort of conned the academic establishment into believing that he had credentials that he didn't have. Huh. And who apparently, um, yeah, the list of De bad behaviors, uh, <laughs> just goes on and, on and on and on and on. Um, and you know, one, Major strike against him. He was a deconstructivist, which, um, he wasn't doctrinaire. It was just some of the things that he was doing really dovetailed with the more doctrinaire stuff that Derrida was doing. And, um, they really sort of hit it off intellectually speaking. And I believe they were friends. Uh, but anyway, he, he has this analysis of the genre of lyric where he basically says that it's not a genre. Mm-hmm. Um it's become more of a social expectation for a particular kind of reading. And as much as I don't as much as I think this guy is a guy who uh I want to keep as far as from my family as possible which I guess is easy because <laughs> he's dead now. Yeah. Um I ha- I have to give it to him because that's that's a hell of an insight. Um as far as I can tell lyric is not really it's a cultural expectation in the 20th and 21st century more than it is an actual genre or mode. You follow?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
2: But to take that back to the 19th century, you know, the question I still have is what were Wordsworth and Coleridge thinking when they were thinking that the ballads they were writing We're lyrical. lyrical. Yeah, yeah. And then why lump all of these other forms? You've got tons of odes, you've got blank verse, you've got a handful of ballads, and you've got these long kind of narrative poems. Um hell, you've got the rhyme of the ancient mariner, which is anything (laughs) but a ballad. Yeah. Um so, like, what were they thinking when they were calling these things ballads? And what were they thinking when they were calling them lyrical ballads? Yeah. Um, that's something that I really want to take up next time. And that's where I kind of want to leave off tonight. Yeah. But, uh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've monologued at you, but do you think you have a clear idea? <laughs> well, that's all right, man. This is the I mean, this is
1: one of those, this is one of those episodes and it's one of those, I mean, this is, this is, I think we're at a point in the project where I'm very much a student right now. And, you know, to be fair, I, uh, I'm a non-traditional student. <laughs> uh, I, and I will be sassing back, but like, it really is like, you know, I'm not fooling when I tell the audience, like, I'm, I'm pretty out to sea on poetry, but I really, really want to learn more. And it's one of those, I think it's one of those topics that, is so okay. Right. All right. (laughs) Everyone's going to think I'm ridiculous for this, but hear me out. I think with poetry, you have a situation similar to how people approach steely Dan. And I am going (laughs) somewhere with this. (laughs) In that there's, you know, there's the kind of first blush. And I've been very guilty of this where there's simply a kind of, not knowing. Well, I mean, like I said, like we're we're pushing this how to read a poem, right? So like Steely Dan, at first blush, you listen to it. It sounds like some smooth jazz bullshit, right? It's got these saxophone solos. You got the bar chimes going. It's embarrassing. Why would any, you know, why would anyone be caught dead listening to it, right? But you listen closely, but you pay attention to it, and what you get instead of just and yes it is smooth jazz bullshit that's that's there too that's important also <laughs> but it's it's a musical style done and kind of in the service of very complicated explorations of things like chords and chord changes and little touches yeah. added and and moments of masterful artistry really masterful artistry That are that are thrown in there that if you're if you're listening to it, like just, you know, if it comes on the dentist's office, of course, you're not going (laughs) to walk away thinking you listen to something great. But and again, people feel free to pelt eggs at me if you sit and listen to with with high quality headphones, (laughs) a lot more a lot more texture comes out, a lot more of the texture and the artistry that goes into it comes out. And I'm excited to yeah. do with poetry what uh, I spend my time doing with Steely Dan.
2: <laughs> no, I I think that's an apt comparison. That It, it goes with appreciation that, you know, yeah. you have to be able to take it and – well, want to expose yourself to it first of all mm-hmm. and then to approach it in a way – that allows you to appreciate it, or not, as the case may be. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hope this has been educational. I hope we didn't get bogged down in things. I hope uh, that you know somebody gets something from this. But we just thought it might be helpful to have some kind of roadmap here um, before we jump straight into, uh, you know, a book of poetry, basically two books of poetry just an initial book revised right yeah yeah to uh it'll probably be helpful to have some of these terms on the table as we move through and sort of analyze what they're doing so well on that note stay tuned for our (laughs) first full read of lyrical ballads yeah and uh just if anybody's reading along, do your best with the original Ancient Mariner. It's it's a wild ride, dude. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that because I, I have read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner as included in a Norton anthology, and I'm presuming that's not the original uh version. So I, I'm excited to see yeah. what was what was left on the cutting room floor.
2: Oh yeah, that was the um that was the cleaned up version. He, he really went out of his way to try to ape a kind of, um, mock old English sound and mm-hmm. diction. Uh, he's following, uh, Coleridge is following, uh, um, Spencer's Fairy Queen in Denim's Oh, wow. Hall. Yeah. Uh, cause it, it, Spencer, invented a kind of mock medieval writing yeah um he's using all kinds of archaisms and neologisms that sound like (laughs) archaisms uh and and coleridge is kind of doing the same thing with rhyme of the ancient meritor but it's it's a weird ghost story about uh a dude who shoots a bird and then ends up a zombie in uh the arctic so
1: (laughs) hey man i'm i'm all for it we'll uh, we'll take a dive yeah. into that and uh or i'm yeah, sorry was- in
2: antarctica excuse me oh um, well they went south
1: the a, a polar region somewhere we can say
2: yeah <laughs> all right so i i guess everyone is is set up as they can be and we'll just conclude it at that all right enjoy